Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. You know how when you were growing up, there was always that one kid who seemed older, cooler, and more interesting? Someone who went to parties and hung out with the older kids. The kid who had everyone sitting on the edge of their seats in homeroom as they gossiped about what happened the night before. When Ferris Bueller, I know what you're thinking, but no, not that one. When Ferris was growing up in Queens, New York in the 90s, he went to a high school called Thomas A. Edison. And that kid who came back to school with stories after every weekend was... A classmate of mine by the name of Kaiser. Kaiser was the cool kid. He was on the basketball team. He was only about 15 or 16. But Kaiser was already exploring New York's nightlife. He would go with his uncles and he would just come back and tell us like, yo, it was crazy last night. But I was just in awe. Like, how did you get in? You know, I've never been to a nightclub in my life. Ferris wanted to know which musicians Kaiser had seen, what songs he'd heard, and if the clubs Kaiser had gone to were as exciting as the rumors about them. He was, like, educating me on what was happening, and I was, like, very fascinated. And the spot that Kaiser talked about the most was a club called The Tunnel. He had heard about it on the radio, too, on Hot 97, to be specific. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Let's take it to The Tunnel real quick. Okay. Understand, New York, it gets no uglier than this right here. Ferris used to listen to the radio in the morning as he got ready to go to school. He would listen to Funk Master Flex talk about the legendary Sunday night Mecca hip-hop parties at the tunnel. I would just hear the radio host talk about guests and uh, what it was like Monday morning or just hyping up the scene and uh, like who would shut down the tunnel, what records were the big records. It seemed like people who went to the hip-hop parties at the tunnel were getting to experience something magical that Ferris was missing out on. But eventually, after years of hearing stories about the club, Ferris finally headed downtown to check out the Sunday night party himself. 
Well, kind of. I believe the first time I was around the tunnel was uh, for Memphis Bleak. He had uh, the Coming of Age album. And I was on the Rockefeller Street team at that time. On the street team, his job was to stick posters up on the walls and help set up for concerts. I got to be inside where no one was in there. And it was interesting to see, like, the space, you know, just seeing the energy of the tunnel. So just got, getting a chance to witness it. But at that time, he was only around 18. And unlike Kaiser, whose uncle snuck him in, the bouncers knew Ferris was too young to be there. So he had to leave before the party actually started. So I just hung out with some people outside just to, like, really catch a glance of all the patrons. You got to see all the clothes, all the people, you know, all the characters. He spent the night outside people watching, and there was a lot to see. Because on Sunday nights, hip-hop heads from all across the city would make their way over to Chelsea. They'd speed down the West Side Highway while playing Hot 97 and head over to 12th Avenue where the nightclub stood. But they had to abandon their cars and walk the rest of the way because there was a long line all the way down the block to get in. You had to go through several security checkpoints to even get close to the door. You felt the element of danger in the air. You felt like with the bouncers at the front of the block before you walk all the way down the cobble uh, stone road. The energy outside the tunnel was intense. Multiple security guards searching people and checking their pockets for weapons. But the reason behind all the tight security? More about that later. The 90s was the golden age of hip-hop. And the party mecca at the tunnel was the club at the center of it all. You see, the thing about the tunnel was that while regular people went to the club, the tunnel was also home to some of hip-hop's greatest musicians. One night when Ferris was spectating from outside the club, he saw a ripple of excitement run through the line. The whole crowd turned their heads and looked over at a light in the distance. And there he was, Jay-Z. He had just released his first number one album, Volume 2, Hard Knock Life. He's just on fire and he's like really ascending, like to just be the big guy. Everyone held their breath as they saw Jay-Z rolling down the street and heading over towards them in a luxurious blue Bentley. And I know what that must have been like. Crazy energy, just crazy. It was just a beautiful moment that's uh, forever etched in my, in my mind. The whole crowd went silent. It was a majestic sight. They were witnessing the entrance of hip-hop royalty. It just was like a calm, like, the guy's here. And watching Jay-Z pull up in that Bentley, it was like seeing everything he rapped about, the luxury and the money coming to life. Just seeing the guy in the car that's on the cover of Volume 2, that's the guy, that's the car, that's like very much uh, living what he spoke about. 
you never knew who was going to drive down 12th Avenue and spend their Sunday night in Mecca at the tunnel. And that's what made it so exciting. Seeing them in the element, in the wild, it was it was uh, spectacular. It was a must if you were around during that time. Just a must. Legendary musicians would come to play a new song to the crowd for the very first time. One-off performances would make the crowd go wild. If you wanted to be involved, you were there. If not, you were at home sleeping in your bed, waking up and hearing about it the night before and wishing you could have attended. Sunday nights at the tunnel were legendary. The DJs behind the booth were tastemakers. Hip-hop started in New York and in the 90s. In the midst of its golden age, it found a home. Mecca at the Tunnel. From London Audio, iHeartRadio, and executive producer Paris Hilton, this is the history of the world's greatest nightclubs. A 12-part podcast about the iconic venues and people that revolutionized how we party. Let me open up your world. Some of the world's most legendary nightclubs were known for the unique community they welcomed, others for the cultural movements they started, and some for the musicians and DJs they introduced to the world. The best nightclubs champion new music, transform lives, and provide an escape from life's pressures. One more thing. This is the history of some of the world's greatest nightclubs, not a ranking of every club in the world. It's an exploration of the spaces, people, and club nights that made a lasting impact on nightlife and music today. I'm your host, Alternate. I'm a singer, songwriter, and musician, and I found my purpose in club culture. This is episode 10, Mecca at the Tunnel in New York, USA. New York was the epicenter of the 90s hip-hop renaissance. And the Sunday night Mecca parties at the Chelsea nightclub, The Tunnel, gave the genre a home. The club hosted legendary performances, iconic song premieres, and its history is filled with tales of cinematic scenes starring hip-hop royalty. It would become a huge success and a cultural touchstone in the legendary 50-year history of hip-hop, a genre that would go on to influence art, culture, and music all around the world. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. Just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. To really understand the story of Mecca at the tunnel, you have to understand the story of hip hop. Hip hop was born 50 years ago in the Bronx. It was the 70s and things were tough for young people in New York. School programs were being cut 
Crime rates were going up and the Bronx was burning. There were more than 120,000 fires in New York City last year. 272 civilians and seven firemen died. There are few things that strike more panic in man than the destructive force of fire. It Landlords were looking for an insurance payout, so they got arsonists to set their buildings on fire. Over the course of the 70s, 250,000 people were displaced and over 80% of housing in the Bronx was lost to the fires. You have Gerald Ford, who was the president at the time. I think the federal government wasn't going to give any type of assistance to the Bronx. That's Jonathan Abrams, a staff writer at the New York Times and the author of The Come Up, an oral history of the rise of hip hop. So the Bronx was burning, crime was going up, and there was a general sense of disillusionment in the city, especially amongst the young people living there. Kids basically have nothing to do and they're looking for something to fill a void in their lives. And at the time, disco is what's really popular as a musical genre. Like in so many eras before and after, amidst everything that was going on in the world around them, young people found solace in music. So at night, kids from the Bronx would go to downtown Manhattan to listen to disco. Remember how in the last episode we talked about the echoes of disco music that played in the garage? Well, by the mid-70s, disco's popularity was beginning to fade. Young people were looking for a new sound. So they started throwing house parties and going to the park to listen to music on the radio. They were looking for something to do and somewhere to belong. And along comes this DJ named Cool Herc. It was August 11th, 1973. And DJ Cool Herc was DJing at his sister Cindy's back-to-school party with his new signature style. He had just figured out how to extend the breakbeats of popular disco and soul songs, to stretch out the music in between lyrics, to give people space and time to dance. All these dancers, the B-boys and the B-girls, they love this extending of the breakbeats because it allows them to do their thing, right? It allows them to dance longer and to get down for the exciting parts of the songs. DJs across the city started looping tracks to create a dance break in the middle of songs they were playing. And the technique DJ Cool Herc had created, breakbeating, formed the basis of a genre that was just beginning to come to life. That's really what people consider the birth of hip-hop. Another technique that would come to stand at the forefront of both hip-hop and how DJs around the world perform today was scratching. So scratching is this technique that was discovered by Grand Wizard Theodore. Another DJ who grew up in the Bronx. And the story goes that Theodore's mother had asked him to turn down the volume of a record. And he didn't, of course. He's <laughs> he's in his zone, in his element, getting down to the music. And when she stormed back into the room to tell him again, probably a little bit stronger, to turn down the music, he tried to stop it immediately by putting pressure on the record with his hand. <laughs> And it created this sound that we know is scratching. So essentially, it's a technique where a DJ or, or a turntablist moves a record back and forth on a turntable to produce the sounds and effects that we today know as scratching. 
the Bronx originated breakbeating and scratching. But there was one more technique to add to the Trinity that would become central to the sound and style of hip hop. And one more DJ. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. Grandmaster Flash is probably one of the most pivotal DJs to ever walk this earth. He was a technician. He was an innovator. He invented something called quick mix theory. Which was essentially being able to repeat on loop the parts of a song that the dancers found most exciting. In 1981, Grandmaster Flash released The Adventures of Grandmaster Flash on the Wheels of Steel. The Adventures of Grandmaster Flash on the Wheels of Steel was pivotal to hip-hop. Flash really depicted the DJ as another musician, and he also helped introduce sampling into hip-hop. Something new was in the air. Local kids were forming crews with MCs, DJs, beatboxers, and producers. And then they were staging rap battles in the park to the breakbeats of disco and funk songs. Hip-hop had already been brewing for a few years in the Bronx, Harlem, and pockets of Brooklyn. But a lot of people still looked at it as a fad. Until one of the first great hip-hop songs was released in 1979, Rapper's Delight. It becomes a sensation that for many, many people, it's their introduction into hip-hop. You know, who can mess with that opening line of hip-hop, a hippity hip-hop, a hip-hip-hop, and you don't stop. I said a hip the Sugar Hill Gang, a rap trio named after an area of Harlem, had taken the disco anthem Good Times by Chic, rapped over it, and created hip-hop's first major hit. Rapper's Delight was the beginning of a wave of hip-hop songs that would elevate the status of the emerging genre and lead it to become one of the greatest musical sounds to come out of New York. It was a really exciting time. It's fresh and new and everything's different and you don't know what this is going to become and it's interesting. So the East Coast and specifically the Bronx in New York had been the birthplace, the epicenter of hip-hop. After Rapper's Delight, Hip-hop swept across the country and headed over to the West Coast, where groups and rappers like N.W.A., Dr. Dre, and Snoop Dogg put their own Californian stamp on it. It's that type of music that can be played on radio. It's that one, two, three, into the four. Snoop Doggy Dogg and Dr. Dre are at the door. And people are riding through the freeways in Los Angeles on sunny days, bumping this, this sound. And it's also at a time when MTV is starting to play hip-hop. Hip-hop wasn't just a fad. It was becoming its own musical universe as artists across the country put their own spin on it. And of course, we can't talk about West Coast hip-hop without mentioning the one and only... I had grown up a a hip-hop fan and Tupac Shakur was... I grew up on the West Coast and he was really the first artist who taught me so much about being Black and what that meant, everything that came with it, and to be proud. By the 90s, hip-hop had evolved and expanded, and it meant different things to different people. 
hip-hop was finally getting mainstream recognition and being played on the radio, which accelerated its growth. Remember how Ferris used to start his mornings listening to Hot 97? Well, it's because the new sound of 90s New York hip-hop was being broadcast across the city by radio DJs like Funkmaster Flex. In the 90s, radio DJs shaped the culture. So Funkmaster Flex, he's a tastemaker, he's a kingmaker, and everybody knows if he drops a bomb on it, (laughs) it usually becomes a hit. Back then, it was the radio that catapulted songs into the mainstream. And DJs took curating their shows very seriously. They're a conduit because they have have their feet in both areas, one foot in the street, and then they have another foot with the executives and the people who are able to make these decisions on who gets these lucrative recording contracts. So Flex was influential. At the time, Flex's manager was Jessica Rosenblum. She was like a nightlife person. That's Ross Scarano a music journalist who wrote an oral history of the tunnel for Complex magazine. You know, she had started um, working the the door at this club called Nell's, which was like a really significant, like, downtown club in the 80s where a lot of, like, the people from the burgeoning rap scene and the downtown art scene and the graffiti scene, you know, folks like Russell Simmons, Fab Five Freddy, like, when you think about those kind of like key players in New York hip hop at the time, like they were all mingling at a place like Nell's. And Jessica worked the door there. She knew how to make a party. She knew who to invite. So when Flex and Jessica started working together, they started throwing parties across the city for Flex to DJ at. The 1980s, they had a club called Latin Quarter, which was really a place that incubated a lot of the mid-1980s hip hop talent. Uh, Salt and Pepper, Schoolie D, LL Cool J, and then the Latin Quarter eventually shut down. And for a while, New York City didn't have that home, that epicenter, that heartbeat of a live place where up-and-coming acts could come and make a name for themselves. And the crowd and the DJs would be the tastemakers who would either crown them and let them know that they're ready for the big time, that they're ready to ascend, or not. (laughs) So that's what Funkmaster Flex and Jessica set out to do. They start this party called Mecca, and it bounces around to a couple different places. Um, And then finally, they get this spot at the tunnel. The tunnel was owned by the club king, Peter Gation who owned and ran a number of prominent New York spots. His other clubs were like the Limelight, the Palladium, and like all those clubs were kind of like notorious and famous for for different reasons. But his club in Chelsea, the Tunnel, was extraordinary. It was an 80,000 square foot space built in an old railroad freight terminal, a tunnel-shaped building with the remnants of an old train track in the main room and a long, narrow dance floor. It had multiple levels, and each room in the long, narrow building had its own theme and decorative style. This venue's massive, so there's like a lot of potential. The tunnel catered to different musical subcultures throughout the week. But the people who went there were predominantly people who belonged to the rock, pop, and dance scene. Arty kids and club kids. There was a whole nother tunnel that existed during the week. But the club had one empty spot. Sunday nights. 
Nobody really wanted to party on a Sunday night, but Flex and Jessica saw an opportunity. They knew they'd been given that night because it was the least popular of the week, and people didn't expect hip-hop parties to be that successful. But when Funkmaster Flex's mecca parties at the tunnel began, Sunday nights took off. We're talking like over 2,000 people. And it's a Sunday night. It's like, what else is there to do, you know? But just, it takes on this life of its own. Because Flex started those parties during a unique moment in history. When hip-hop wasn't just a new sound that young people were playing in parks and house parties. By the 90s, a whole industry was being built around the genre. And people were making a lot of money. Rap was becoming mainstream and was becoming like this commercial giant. It's producing powerful Black entrepreneurial figures that like must have felt so new in culture at that time. Diddy had started Bad Boy Records, Jay-Z had started Rockefeller Records, and Def Jam was releasing hit album after album. Hip-hop was making a lot of money, but for a while, there wasn't a major nightclub that the genre could call home, which is why the Mecca party at the tunnel became so popular and quickly became the club where all the major players spent their Sunday nights. There's no party that's playing hip-hop like this for a venue this big. The incredible success of those parties proved that hip-hop was a financial force to be reckoned with. The crowds on Sunday night at the tunnel just kept on growing. People would come to Mecca at the tunnel to hear Funkmaster Flex play the hottest new records. And then the next day, they would listen to him on the radio to experience those songs all over again. Flex was establishing both himself and the tunnel as central to 90s hip-hop. So to close the loop between DJing on the radio and DJing at the tunnel, he started to DJ live from the tunnel. And then eventually he gets on the radio while he's still throwing these parties. Here's one of the signature drops Flex used to play during his radio shows. It came from a clip of David Letterman talking about how hard it was to get a ticket to a Funkmaster Flex show. Funk Master Flex Night. That's when the real fun begins. Funk Master Flex Night. Yeah. yeah. Hard to get a ticket. Hard to get a ticket. Hard to get a ticket. There were dozens of radio stations that would have clamored to get a first play of a new song. But Flex was the DJ who some of the most influential musicians of the 90s wanted to premiere their songs. He was a tastemaker and highly respected in the hip-hop community. So major musicians who'd already made a name for themselves would take their new songs to the Mecca party at the tunnel to see a crowd of hardcore hip-hop fans listen to them for the first time. It became like a phenomenon where you would do your record release party there, where instead of having the song debut on the radio, like an artist would want the song to debut at the tunnel. It just had a level of like cultural cachet that feels like impossible to replicate now when it comes to like a physical space. And one of the musicians who valued the club's cultural cachet was Diddy. Diddy was at the height of his career. Bad Boy Records was one of the most influential labels in hip hop. And at the time, Diddy had a new song coming out called All About the Benjamins, which I've danced to a million times. Instead of going to the radio to debut it, he gave the song to Funkmaster Flex to premiere at the tunnel. The first time they played that at the tunnel, they played it for like an hour. And as that hour unfolded, the crowd in the tunnel began to channel the energy of the song. 
and like somebody pulls hundred dollar bills out of their their pockets or whatever and starts like lighting them on fire just because they were so hyped and everybody's like heard a song out and just felt like totally transported and like out of their body and out of their mind. You didn't have to be famous or work in the music industry to get into the tunnel. That's the part that I think is like really also hard to imagine is that like the moguls and the artists would be in there mixing with the crowd. Like there was no VIP section there and it was like a great leveler of people. So like you were a kid, you're a 19 year old coming in from Brooklyn versus your Dame Dash or your Puffy. Like you're all kind of like on the same playing field. You're all in the same space. Nobody's like lording over someone in some, you know, cordoned off VIP area. And seeing that ascent up close at those Mecca nights at the tunnel, as a regular hip hop fan was inspiring. You can see the ways in which like, oh, rap is like money now, it's big money. It was a club where regular people like Ferris could party with hip hop royalty and feel perfectly at home. There weren't clout chasers running around to get photos and autographs. I think people wanted to share that experience of just even just feeling that energy and seeing what it is. And it's exciting to know like, hey, I'm in the same room as a, a Jay or a Puff or whoever, you know, like just allowing to be in the room. Like, oh, okay, yeah, we're partying in the same spot. I'm in the right place. It was less a sense of, look who's here, and more of a sense of, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. The tunnel was a unique space where fans and musicians could congregate to listen to great music together. It was a joyous space to celebrate and be celebrated. But outside, things were a bit more complicated. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You can't understate the influence that rap had on hip-hop in the 90s. It was about people speaking to the reality of their lives. Musicians like Biggie, Dr. Dre, and Jay-Z were making music about their experiences, rapping about their upbringing, their neighborhoods, and what it was actually like to grow up in places where drugs, gangs, and crime were a part of their everyday lives. 
But rap music and gang culture became synonymous, at least in the eyes of the city and the police. Here's an ABC News report from 1993. And if you look in the category of hot rap singles, and there are 50 of them, many of the titles suggest violence, sex, drug use, and profanity. In fact, I can't even say some of the names of the songs on television. In the 90s, New York was in the midst of a crack epidemic and experiencing record levels of crime. The mayor at the time, Rudy Giuliani, saw hip-hop as a contributing factor. So clubs that played it immediately had a target on their back. Giuliani's administration is all about cracking down on, like, those... You know, there's like minor offenses in like a really aggressive way. It created an atmosphere that was highly suspicious of like gatherings of black and brown people for sure. The administration was also clamping down on crime and nightlife in general as part of Giuliani's quality of life campaign. There was all this anxiety around like the drug trade happening in the clubs. The NYPD and the city was just like very, very aggressive in their treatment of nightlife. But they were even more aggressive when it came to policing the Mecca night at the tunnel. 90s hip-hop was all about glamour and money, and since a few of the major labels and crews were associated with New York gangs, the police had a negative perception of the culture surrounding the music. They thought it was volatile and dangerous, provocative and transgressive. You know, this isn't like Barry Gordy in Motown, where everything is like super polished. So there was a long security line to get into those Sunday night parties. But, you know, one of the things that's like aggravating that, I think, is that like there was a constant police presence there, which is just like raising the temperature on everything because there's so much surveillance. And it started way before people even got into the club. You know, people talk about like how walking the block to the club, which was at 27th and 12th Ave, felt like walking through like a militarized zone because of all the police barricades and and stuff that you'd have to traverse. The tunnel was open all week, but that extra level of heavy, intense security only applied to Sunday night hip-hop parties. People had to take off their shoes, have their pockets searched for weapons, and have their photos checked against mugshots. It was some of the most aggressive club security in the city. People compared it to the kind of like uh, search that you would receive, like if you were going to visit someone who was incarcerated. It's really showing like how the establishment was still viewing rap music as this like very volatile, like potentially dangerous thing that has to be policed, like quite literally. They treated people like they were constantly under suspicion and harassed them before they could even step into the club. But most people just complied. They didn't really have any other choice. Arguing about it or causing a scene could be dangerous for them. However, it cast a dark shadow on the start of each night, reminding each person who went to the tunnel, excited to celebrate and listen to their favorite musicians of all the assumptions the police, security, and the city made about them, just based on the color of their skin and the music they listened to. But by that point, Hip-hop fans were used to the extra level of scrutiny they experienced everywhere they went. People didn't go to Mecca parties at the tunnel looking for trouble. They went to have a good time. But the tunnel did have a reputation for theft. It's something Ferris remembers from the nights he spent waiting in the security line to get into the club. 
They said, do not tuck your chain, put it in, take it off and put it in your pocket. And they were just security guys, just letting people know, like, yeah, like, look, there's a chance you may get robbed tonight. But once you got into the party, you forgot about what was going on outside. Because inside the tunnel, the music was turned all the way up. The dance floor was packed and the energy inside the club was intoxicating. Despite security warning them not to, people did come into the tunnel shining. 90s hip hop was all about designer clothes, sportswear labels, and icy jewelry. People dressed up and yeah, Versace, Moschino, we just, you know, people just trying to show out. You know, it was a like a post-Biggie era. So everyone wanted to like show that they had money, but the energy of the tunnel was just different. It was different, man. It was so street. It was just so like hood luxury. Yeah, it was just so raw. It was, it was, it was beautiful, a raw diamond. It was just hard. Everyone was on the come up and they weren't afraid to show it. There's this line in the song, Mo Money, Mo Problems by Biggie that goes, Throw your rollies in the sky, wave them side to side, and keep your hands high. And I remember just being a kid at house parties in, in Queens, in Rosedale to be exact, and we'd be in like little basement parties. None of us had watches, but we knew to throw our wrists up and like wave them left to right, like just like the video. So people would do that in the club. But... That was like a signal to show who had a watch. You know, it was almost like uh, uh, a way of like knowing who had it. And then that guy would probably get his beloved watch taken later that night. That's what it was. It was just crazy. It was hectic. Yeah, sometimes there were fights. And not everyone who walked in with a Rolex left with a Rolex. But Mecca nights at the tunnel were spectacular. Walking around the club felt like stepping into a 90s hip-hop music video. You'd have these incredible, immersive moments listening to Funkmaster Flex premiere new songs on the dance floor, and then you'd catch a glimpse of the person who'd made that song. You'd make sure to keep your chain tucked in your pocket, but you'd look around to see people wearing fresh Timberlands. I still wear my Tims. And it wasn't just the dance floor that you couldn't pull your eyes away from. At the tunnel, the bathrooms were a thing of legend. There's this big unisex bathroom at the tunnel that everybody likes to talk about. You know how the girls' bathroom feels like a hollowed place? The place to tell your secrets and strategize your night? The bathroom at the tunnel kind of felt like that, too. It was a huge space with green tiled walls. It was like an event to go there. It was like a wild scene. And people were selling drugs and doing drugs there. People were having sex. Like, it was, you know, it was like <laughs> the even more intense version of probably what was happening like, on the dance floor. Like, I remember talking to Jada Kiss and Jada was telling me that, like, when he went to the tunnel, he'd always spend, like, about an hour in the bathroom. Because they, they had a bar in the bathroom, too. It was an unconventional space. The DJs at the tunnel were tastemakers. But the Mecca crowd at the tunnel was just as influential. That was really kind of like the definitive rap party in New York. And, and it kind of like breaks my brain when I think about it, because I just I just can't imagine like the level of excitement that that kind of a confluence of things would have created. Like you were, I mean, they called it Mecca, right? And like you really were in the Mecca of hip hop at that time. 
Nights at the Tunnel had an almost cinematic quality to them. It was a space that symbolized a unique moment in history, the golden age of 90s hip-hop. And you can see its influence in so many key pop culture artifacts from that era. So the thing about the tunnel is even if you don't recognize the name, like you've actually encountered it. LL Cool J filmed the music video for his song, Doing It, in the bathroom of the tunnel. A scene that took place in the club was recreated in the film Straight Outta Compton. Onyx wrote a whole song telling the story of a night spent at the tunnel. And the opening scene of the Hype Williams film Belly was filmed there too. Mecca at the tunnel embodied a unique moment in hip-hop history. And even back then, people could sense that their nights there would become legendary. And so they wanted to capture the unique thrill of the moment they were living in. A couple years ago, Ross interviewed DMX before he tragically passed away about the impact the tunnel had on his career. He was just so excited to talk about the tunnel and so excited to like reminisce about this point in his career where he described it as kind of like his entry into, into hip-hop. The music video for Get At Me Dog, which is his first single and his first music video, they shot it at the tunnel and like they shot it basically live, like on a regular night. DMX's crew brought their cameras in and began to film what was going on around them. They went in there on a Sunday night when it was packed with regular people and they shot the video based on him performing it at the tunnel. The video's black and white, but you can feel the energy through the screen as DMX performs to a crowd filled with people. He'd heard that the like from Flex and those guys that like the song was like blowing up the club, but he'd never been there before he went to shoot the video. And he shoots the video and, and he's just like, he's just in awe at this rapturous reception he's receiving. That moment meant everything to DMX. It like just like stamps his career in kind of a permanent way. Performing his first major single live from Mecca at the Tunnel was a thrilling experience. And as one of the most influential rappers, that music video carries weight. The Tunnel was a key landmark in music history and captured a unique era when hip-hop was on the come-up, when its songs were becoming national and then international hits. And the genre was cementing its place as a central pillar of American music. That golden age of hip-hop, its influence, it was legendary. And Mecca at the Tunnel gave it a home. 2023 marks the 50th anniversary of the birth of hip-hop. And it's had an extraordinary journey. Here's Jonathan again. For me, hip-hop is the greatest come up story of all because it was like I said at the beginning it was this thing that was started just to give kids self-esteem in the Bronx in the mid-1970s they had nothing and they invented this musical genre that's the most dominant most popular in the world today and to me that's just a remarkable story of turning nothing into something it's had a lasting influence on almost every genre of contemporary music. You see hip-hop in pop. You see hip-hop in neo-soul. You see tons of hip-hop in R&B. I mean, I don't even know if there's a musical genre that hip-hop hasn't touched by this point. One of the interesting components about hip-hop is that you look at hip-hop's roots and it takes things from so many different genres, right? Hip-hop was influenced by jazz, by disco, by soul, by funk. Hip-hop started by absorbing 
all these other musical genres. Now it's producing them and, and giving it out. I mean, it gives clubs bangers, right? <laughs> but while it's one of the most influential genres of our time, there aren't as many big budget documentaries, books, and films about it as other genres. Rap history isn't documented and treated with the same sort of esteem that like rock and roll history is. Like if you walk into a bookstore or something, like you can find so many books on just like rock music in the 60s. But in 50 years, it's become not only just one of the cornerstones of contemporary music, but one of the strongest pillars of American pop culture. It reflects what's happening in the world and the fingerprints of its influence can be seen everywhere. It's like one of the most important contributions to the world in like American history. It's like jazz and, and rap and they, they deserve to be documented with the same sort of rigorousness that, you know, Bob Dylan's every move is documented. After 15 incredible years, the tunnel closed in 2001. The club's owner was deported to Canada on a tax evasion charge. And like so many of the clubs we've talked about in this series, as a new decade began, the musical landscape changed. Even good things don't last forever. But while the tunnel was open, it played an incredibly vital role in the 90s hip-hop renaissance. Those Sunday night mecca parties gave musicians a place to play, and premiered their music to some of the most ardent hip-hop fans in the city. Funkmaster Flex catapulted iconic songs into the mainstream. It was a space for rappers, musicians, and fans to celebrate hip-hop and imagine a vision for all that it could still become. Mecca at the Tunnel was right at the center of it all. It is like embedded in hip-hop history. And you just got a chance to partake in, in something beautiful that I honestly don't think will be replicated. It's possible to replicate, and I'm sure at the time it was also impossible to predict, like the way that all these, these pieces would align to create this magnificent, really memorable, <laughs> sometimes really volatile night of like partying in New York. In the next episode, we're going over to Germany to one of the sexiest and most exclusive clubs, Berghain. The History of the World's Greatest Nightclubs is produced by Neon Hum Media for London Audio and iHeartRadio. For London Audio, our executive producers are Paris Hilton, Bruce Robertson, and Bruce Gersh. The executive producer for Neon Hum is Jonathan Hirsch. Our producer is Rifaro Faith Mazarura. Navani Otero and Liz Sanchez are our associate producers. Our series producer is Crystal Genesis. Our editor is Stephanie Serrano. Samantha Allison is our production manager and Alexis Martinez is our production coordinator. This episode was written by Rufaro Faith Mazarura and fact-checked by Catherine Newhan. Theme and original music by Asha Ivanovich. Our sound design engineers are Sam Baer and Josh Hahn. I'm your host, Ultranate, and we'll see you next time on the history of the world's greatest nightclubs.
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.